0: McLaughlin here for Stick Together, a half hour of worker stories, union news and social justice issues. We come to you from VCR on the unceded lands of the Kulin Nation with respect to the elders past, present and emerging. We are coming to you on your community radio station through the Community Radio Network. Two reports today. Earlier this month the Union Solidarity Organization, Australia Asia Worker Links. AAWL reported a victory for sacked Sri Lankan Union leaders after 11 years of court action against Australian-based multinational Ansell. We follow this with a look at Australia's broken temporary work visa system and how, if, if immigration policy was at the right setting, there could be a win for both employers, workers and society.
1: You're listening to Stick Together, Worker Stories and Union News, broadcast around the country every week on the Community Radio Network.
0: When multinational national PPE company Ansel which is listed on the Australian Stock Exchange, went on a union-busting campaign across its supply chain in Brazil, Malaysia and Sri Lanka. It set in chain a series of actions that culminated in Sri Lankan union leaders being fired and going to court for compensation, a case that went on for 11 years. The case finally came to an end with a victory for the workers. Jerome Small from Australian Asia Worker Links, AAWL, explains how international union solidarity was crucial in the victory. OK, thanks very much for coming in and talking to me today, Jerem Small. And the reason for I want to talk to you is about a, a heroic struggle by Sri Lankan workers uh, over 11 years uh, to get compensation from Ansel, the uh, PPE company, and... Uh, now, um, let's go back over the story and why, uh, and remind listeners that Ansel still has its offices in Melbourne.
2: That's right, yeah. So Ansel used to be a Melbourne-based company, used to do a lot of manufacturing of condoms uh, and other protect- you know, protective equipment of all sorts in Australia. Uh, a bunch of years ago, they started um, offshoring all of their manufacturing, all of their manufacturing like None of it happens in Australia. Most of, and they've sold off the condom division, so they do PPE mainly for medical purposes. That's about half their profits. So those blue gloves that you see, a lot of them come from Ansell, or um, you know through bits of their supply chain, uh, but also PPE for uh, military purposes, for firefighting. Uh, there'd be electricians who wear Ansel gear, oil workers, meat workers who wear some of their protective gloves uh, and arm protection and so on. So they're an enormous multinational company, the market leader in personal protective equipment, obviously have made extraordinary profits over the last couple of years uh, with the COVID crisis. And they're still listed on the Australian Stock Exchange, uh, but they don't have any of their, like it's just the listing that happens here, they've got an office down in Melbourne. So yeah, which... Post a bit of a challenge in trying to hold them to account for their uh, union-busting activities, especially in Sri Lanka over the past few years.
0: Yeah. Now, um, this is one of the things that's so important about a company like Ansel and its relationship with workers is, uh, and why Australian workers should be aware that this is an ongoing uh, struggle for all workers across the world. Now, Ansel uh, has its business arrangements in this way and it's common for multinationals to do this. Now, in this particular case, uh, they actively used uh, local laws to try and circumvent their uh, responsibilities to their workers in Sri Lanka didn't they
2: yeah that's right so in in 2013 Ansel went on uh, actually a bit of a, a international union busting tear if you look at the industrial all. Uh, website, the Global Union Federation for Manufacturing Unions, Uh, Ansel uh, effectively busted or tried to bypass their unions in Brazil, in Malaysia, and in Sri Lanka uh, in 2013. In Sri Lanka, they've had operations there from, I think, the early 1990s, and the workers at the Ansel Lanka factory, there's about 2,000 workers there, they've recently started up a second factory there, Um, and they operate in a free trade zone, which was meant to be a 100% union-free um, you know, profit-maximising export zone, yeah, in Sri Lanka.
0: These free trade zones are common right across the world, aren't they? There's one in Northern Territory here. Yeah, right.
2: Okay, thanks for the reminder. I actually keep forgetting that fact that... Uh, um,
0: um, Australians like to forget that uh, they're part of an international uh, oppression system.
2: Yeah, and and it's very common, like, you know, v- visiting, well, you know, pretty much any country... Uh, the Philippines uh, has free trade zones, and the government and the corporations there work extremely hard to keep them union free. And it's the same sort of situation in um, Sri Lanka, where and I don't know the specific arrangements in the Philippines. It's tax concessions and um, you know a concentrated dose of union busting that the and decent infrastructure that the government promises to uh, get multinational companies to come there, employ people, and pay some minimal tax. Um,
0: Let's get to Sri Lanka in this particular case in 2013. Let's let's look at this story in particular.
2: Yeah. So, as I said, the ANSEL workers in Sri Lanka uh, had unionised in the 1990s. They were the first uh, workforce in that free trade zone to do so. And this was um, an enormous thorn in the side, both of ANSEL itself and other employers in the area. And around 2012, 2013, the, the company started on a pretty sophisticated union-busting operation. So... They started signing people over to a labour hire firm rather than um, employing them directly. Uh, you know, for tactic that'd be familiar, very familiar to workers in Australia. Um, they introduced a, a sort of company union uh, or association and encouraged people to join that rather than the independent union that they'd been a part of. And then the uh, leader, the factory leader of the uh, union in the Ansel factory, was beaten up. All of the unionists suspected that this was at the behest of the company. When the uh, union leader put in a complaint to police and said, look, I think this has something to do with the union busting operation, Ansel sacked uh, the union leader. This then led to you know, further industrial disputation in the plant, um, ultimately a strike of all 2,000 workers. Um, about 300 workers got sacked after a 40, I think it was a 45-day strike, um, and that led to a whole uh, international campaign.
1: G'day comrades, my name's Luke Licari. I'm the secretary of the Victorian Trades Hall Council, which is right here in uh, Melbourne, Australia. I want to send a message of solidarity to everyone who's involved in the ANSEL campaign. It is just so important that we keep this company to account. Um, we are more than angry about what they've done to their workers across their entire supply chain. It um, doesn't matter if you're working in a rubber plantation, if you're working in Sri Lanka and you're one of those union leaders that have been stood down. Um, if you're in Indonesia doing your organising work there too, like we're sending you our, our very best support. Um, you know, AnSAL is a company that is based out of Melbourne, it's where they count their profits. And that's profits have been generated by workers across the world in some of really appalling conditions. You know What would otherwise be called some of their supply lines, um, really modern slavery with like debt bondage and stuff. And to see Ansel, who's made millions of dollars during this pandemic, continue to union bust, um, it is pretty unforgivable. So we send our solidarity to everyone who's standing up to Ansel today, um, especially to those workers that were unjustly sacked in Sri Lanka. I'm going to give a lot of love to, I know, the UK comrades out there who are taking action as well. Um, We're going to keep up the fight with you. We think this is super important. Ansel should be made to have better Labour standards across this globe. Um, Solidarity to you all and keep up the fight.
2: First, uh, we had Anton Marcus from the Free Trade Zone Union in Sri Lanka come over in 2016, as long ago as that, as part of that international campaign to get the 300 workers reinstated. After that international pressure, a lot of workers were reinstated. None of the union leaders, none of the 11 union leaders in the Ancel factory in Sri Lanka were reinstated. And... Uh, legal action continued, compensation was ordered by an arbitrator, Um, but the Sri Lankan court system is such that companies can just keep on appealing and appealing and appealing and never actually pay out. So this is the tactic that Ansel was following. So in 2020, Ansel workers reached out to Australia-Asia Worker Links, a Melbourne-based solidarity organisation that I'm involved with. And we put together quite, if I say so myself, a pretty impressive international and uh, Melbourne-based especially coalition of unions uh, and NGOs to kick up a fuss about that and try to hold Ansel to account and our point being, well, okay, the profits are counted here. There's a brass plaque which is polished here saying Ansel Um, and if we're serious about being internationalists, there's there's some obligation on us as unionists to to show some solidarity for, for workers battling an Australian multinational company. We got really solid support from a whole bunch of unions, the Nurses and Mid uh, Midwifery Association here especially, uh, showed a video that uh, we produced as part of the campaign to their 700 delegates. They passed, a uh, this is in 2021, I believe, they passed a motion of support, approached the minister, said, look, why are we buying gloves that are made in union busted or in the case of Malaysia, actual slave labour conditions uh, for large parts of Ansel's supply chain. There was a sign-on letters, uh, we had a protest at the end of that year on International Human Rights Day that was supported by the Maritime Union, uh, the Electrical Trades Union, the health unions especially, so VARPA, HACSU, the ANMF uh, were really supportive, Trade Hall Council uh, took an active interest in it. Um, so that was locally, and then internationally, we're also putting together um, a coalition and, and made contact with uh, workers in the PPE industry in uh, Indonesia, uh, the the NHS in the UK, made contact with the unions there who also had similar, uh, you know, concerns about the supply chain for PPE generally, and Ansell in particular. So at one stage we were having international meetings which encompassed the entire supply chain, from plantations through to manufacturing through to final use here in Australia. And that was, you know, th- that, that was a pretty interesting experience just to get all of those people in the room.
3: Ancel has serious indicators of forced labour, both in its direct, wholly owned, factories in Malaysia, also in its uh, partly owned factories and also in its massive supply chain. It's one of the biggest buyers of gloves in Malaysia. We see workers in this industry paying up to $5,000 for their jobs, which leaves them in serious debt bondage at high risk of forced labour. We see excessive overtime both in Ancel's factories and also in their supply chain of up to 150 hours per month on top of a 48-hour week. We see appalling accommodation conditions where up to 60 or 70 people may be staying in one room with limited toilet and bathing facilities. And we see really dangerous work conditions where industrial accidents are frequently occurring. Ansell has a lot of leverage as one of the biggest buyers of gloves from Malaysia to really ensure remediation of these forced labor indicators to ensure that workers are paid back the fees that they are working decent hours earning a living wage and also being compensated properly for accidents. We haven't seen this. We've seen Ansel making massive profits from the Covid pandemic. We've seen those workers who are providing the gloves at high risk of contracting Covid. And in some cases, the workers have also died. Ansel needs to do more. It should do more. And it shouldn't be making profits at the expense of exploitable, high risk migrant workers.
4: In 2020, The largest outbreak of COVID in Malaysia was among low-paid migrant workers in factories operated by Topglove, a major supplier to Ancel. In March 2021, US Customs and Border Protection banned shipments from Topglove due to evidence of modern slavery in their supply chain.
2: Of course, the gold standard would be achieving some sort of industrial action where, you know, workers here are saying, well, no, the, these gloves are contaminated um, by, you know, the the stench of uh, forced labour, of union-busted uh, uh, practices by the company and we're refusing to use them. We never got that far, but we were certainly, you know, pointing in that direction. And I think all of those points of pressure finally added up to Ansel uh, concluding that they should do what they should have done 10 years ago which was to compensate the union leaders so um they finally earlier this year stopped their appeals and then went through a legal process to unscramble the egg and as of a few weeks ago all of those 11 union leaders like i mean really if there was any justice they should have their jobs back but some of them are approaching retirement now um you know different circumstances so they ended up accepting compensation from ansell and that's a win Obviously, it's a win for those workers. Like, it's an incredible fight to put up, to fight for a decade. Um, but it's also a win as they uh, recognise themselves for every single worker in that free trade zone, Um So there's been a number of unions formed since then. There's been a lot of attempts to form unions, you know, in different stages of, of, you know, being formed or being busted. But the fact that there's some international solidarity out there uh, for workers in this situation, the fact that it's possible to push and push and to actually get a result and not just be dictated to by the company, I think is of significance, um, you know, obviously for those workers, but also for... Workers generally in that free trade zone in Sri Lanka, and and hopefully more broadly as well. Um, but the, I mean, the PPE industry is just a basket case for our workers' rights, unfortunately.
0: Yeah, yeah, and um, basically on a broader level, it's um, what we've got is multinationals holding society to ransom, effectively. And even though this is a win, it brings back the curtain. Um, and exposes modern slavery. And this is something that Australians, who are the end users of the products of companies like Ensel, and I'll have to say we've just recently heard about uh, the poor old Cambodian workers uh, making uh, shoes for Nike and uh, Adidas, being paid such low wages that they're going into uh, hock to their bosses, with loans, loan sharking, basically. Yeah,
2: right. Okay, that's interesting, which is pretty much the definition of modern slavery. That And there's a, a very brisk business model. If people want more information, uh, listeners want more information, I think one of the best places to start that I've found in terms of... Uh, uh, dealing with modern slavery and approaches to it and scandals and remediation and, and, and battle in that general area. Andy Hall is an incredibly zealous and effective campaigner on issues of modern slavery. If you just Google Andy Hall modern slavery, you'll find his website pretty easily and um, that just has an enormous amount of Especially in uh, Malaysia, uh, which is the centre of PPE production of, of rubber glove production, um, which has a business model of uh, migrant labourers from Nepal, from Bangladesh, from Myanmar, paying enormous sums to
0: uh, to middle, the privilege.
2: That's right of yeah, getting a job, and then get a job in Malaysia, have to work uh, you know extraordinary hours and uh, under pretty inhuman conditions to pay that loan back so it's it's effectively like it's a form of bonded stick labour. together S-
5: yeah.
0: stick together, together. Yeah. stick, stick together. together
2: stick together stick
0: together stick together stick
3: together stick together you're listening to stick together
4: on community radio
0: a lot has been said about flaws in Australia's visa system, with many people caught in a subclass, a subclass of low and insecure work, engineered by the temporary visa settings in Australia's immigration system. Associate Dean Research from Adelaide Law School Professor Joanna Howell's presentation at the recent Economic and Social Outlook Conference gives a lightning-fast account of Australia's recent immigration visa system. She gives us a view of a broken system, how it could be fixed to the benefit of employers, workers and society with a little twist at the end about the transformative potential of immigration.
4: So Judith started by stating that the national interest was the most important objective of the migration program. And I'd I'd just beg to differ in the sense that there are three primary constituencies. There's the national interest. Of course, migration has to benefit Australia as a nation, but employers and working people, so local workers and immigrants, temporary migrants, are also key constituencies of the system. And we conceive this as a, a triple win. In the literature, immigration is meant to be a triple win for all three. But I think what is agreed on in the panel and by the minister for home affairs is that the australian immigration program is broken and it doesn't it hasn't been working fi- any of those three constituencies I'm going to identify the three problems and three potential solutions and we uh, this will build on the work that we did in the review so the first is that the temporary migration program was underpinned by employer demand when it was conceived in 1996 it was conceived as a discrete program to bring in very highly skilled workers from overseas and employers would determine where the skill shortages were and they would be able to access these workers quickly what happened over the intervening decades was that the system grew, it blew up and it became a general labour supply visa so that you didn't have to be highly skilled, it it was bringing in workers much lower down on the skill spectrum. The occupation list that it was based on was ANSCO which has not been updated since 2001 so emerging uh, industries and occupations in tech etc were just not on the occupational list and were inaccessible for Australian employers. There was no independent method for verifying skill shortages. At one point, every skilled occupation was eligible for the 457 visa, even if it wasn't in shortage domestically. And at one point, suddenly flight attendants appeared on the skill shortage list after Alan Joyce had a meeting with the then minister. So there was a lack of public confidence, there was a lack of accountability and transparency around how the the skilled immigration program was being built. And when Malcolm Turnbull abolished the 457 visa because it had lost its way, he ostensibly reproduced it by creating a 482 visa that did very much the same thing. And so the fix of many uh, politicians has been employer-conducted labour market testing, which is that employers have to go through this charade of showing that they've recruited and they've tried to recruit locals and been unable to do so. Essentially, it was Red tape on the good employers and the unscrupulous ones who wanted to rot the system could easily tick that box, so it did nothing. The second problem was that by 2016, it had become very clear that we had a de facto low skill work program through international students and backpackers, and so we said we weren't a guest worker nation, but ostensibly we had become one. And the Senate report in 2016, a national disgrace, really blew this issue open and it was detrimental to employers who um, had to rely on on this backdoor pathway into the labour market but equally it created endemic exploitation for those cohorts because they worked in industries with a norm of non-compliance and the the farce of it all was that the 457 visa had all this front end red tape. You had to be a good employer eligible to sponsor overseas workers but you know if you really wanted to exploit migrants you could do it through the student visa and the backpacker visa because there was no front door checks. So the regulatory design of the system was not fit for purpose and then the third problem really that we identified in the review and that I've identified in my own research is the breakdown of the political consensus in favor of immigration. So in 1995, it was a Labor government that commissioned the Roach report that conceived of the 457 visa and it was a Howard coalition government the following year that then implemented Labor's legislation. I don't think we would see that today, that a, a bill on immigration that had been introduced by a predecessor government was then introduced by their successor. And this is really hard for employers. I've done a lot of work travelling to over 13 regions across our country interviewing growers who don't plant acreages because they can't plan plan for the future because they don't know if they'll have the labour supply. And this started, this politicisation and the breakdown of consensus, it started in many ways with Gillard saying in her Rudy Hill speech, foreign workers need to go back to the back of the queue. But it's continued ever since. Peter Dutton recently saying that labour is creating a big Australia by stealth. But what is his solution? In nine years, when he was Home Affairs Minister for much of it, the government did nothing. And is it to shut the borders completely or is it to... Let down business who ultimately does need an immigrant workforce for many sectors in the economy The AG visa the mess of that is emblematic of this breakdown of consensus when the British when the British government said We don't want to have a free trade agreement that allows our backpackers to work a second year on farms because They're getting exploited so we want to get rid of that 88 days with the Brits The Morrison government announced on the run an AG visa, but the hard work had not been done in building deep consensus behind that ag visa with the unions and with the opposition at the time and as a result employers planned on that ag visa, labour gets elected, abolishes the ag visa and we're back to square one with a mess in terms of agricultural labour supply in, in that sector. So the solutions, what do we do? The first is we need to address these regulatory challenges and look at the design of the system and that's what the review tried to do. We need to moderate employer demand. I agree with Judith that the system has to work in the national interest and employers are not the best judge of what the national interest is. They may have a short-term interest in getting these overseas workers, but we have to work out is that in the best interest of the nation. So the government in establishing Jobs and Skills Australia to really create that independent verification of labour market need is a really significant development. We also need to address exploitation in sponsored visas. So the review talks about portability and creating a system where temporary migrants who are, can move between employers effectively and are not tired. It needs to be accessible to small business employers. So in the review, we talk about um, less upfront fees and rolling fees from month to month. Secondly, we need to address the permanently temporary underclass. If we have skill needs in agriculture or horticulture, we should not be addressing them through the back door of an 88-day visa, but we should have a front door system. And indeed, we do. We have the PALM scheme, but that needs to be operating more effectively writ large. We have to also ask, are the shortages... In these sectors like hospitality, care, horticulture, are they a shortage of available workers who don't want to work at embedded low pay and conditions because those sectors have become an underclass for exploited temporary migrants or are they a genuine shortage and so that's why Jobs and Skills Australia's role is really key and then the final point is we need to rebuild bipartisan support for immigration policy. It shouldn't be a political football and there needs to be deep consensus. And I think, again, the Labor government is trying to do this with JSA, which is tripartite base, and through rebuilding the Ministerial Advisory Council on Migration, and even in the agriculture space, the agriculture minister convening a working group that involves employers and unions to try and get bipartisan support for agricultural reforms. I want to conclude by noting the transformative potential of immigration. So my father left India where he lived in a one bedroom, where he slept in a one bedroom room with his six brothers and sisters and he left India with one suitcase and he went to England where he worked in the day, studied at a private college at night, met my mum on a blind date and eventually came to Australia, married with his three children. And it was in this place that as as a permanent visa holder, he built his home in the late 1980s because we didn't have temporary work visas then because they weren't even really invented for skilled migrants. And then from that, I benefited from this great country. I now live in the best city, Adelaide, in the best country in the world. And my five children grow up fully as Australians. And this is the place that is our home. And that's the transformative potential of immigration. And that's where we need to get to. Thank you very much
0: that's it for stick together this week if you want to catch up with the program the podcast is available at 3cr.org.au or at spotify or itunes you can contact the producers of the show at sticktogether3cr at gmail.com or by ringing 03 9419 8377 and leaving us a message my name's annie mclaughlin remember wherever you are whatever you do There's a union for you. And until next time, stick together.